Jeep, 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 Jeep. Why are they all fucking Jeeps? Why are they all Jeeps? Hello, everybody. It is the evening of November 9th. My name is Justin Comer, and you are listening to Rock Hard Caucus, Iowa's best and only podcast. <laughs> Sponsored by Jeep. 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 I'm joined by uh, Evan Jones, as usual. Yo. Hello, Evan. Good to see you again. And back from a bit of a hiatus, we've got Natalie Harwood on the line. Hi. Welcome back, Natalie. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. How have things been going for you? Let's do a little check-in before we get into the episode. How are you feeling like, about me? the election, specifically? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> I feel no happiness and no sadness at the same time. So I have just felt dead inside. I want it to be happy, and I wanted to be able to revel in the fucking Trump loss, but I feel nothing because I just am anticipating four years of crushing austerity and uh, increasing <laughs> imperial <laughs> engagements abroad, and I feel nothing. So cool, just totally flat. Yeah, yep, flat. That's yeah, it. I think limbo is a good uh, description for what what to expect for Biden. You know, yep. four years of limbo, just pausing and are you know barreling towards. Apocalypse and decay. <laughs> uh, we're starting off with uh, extreme optimism. <laughs> and I did not vote for Joe Biden. I said I wouldn't and I didn't. So, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's fuck you is a good way to start things off. Uh, we've got tonight a very important guest. The first time we've ever had, I think it's the first time we've ever had a journalist on the program. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Other than yeah. Jalen. Yeah, sure. You know, we have we're typically kind of an anti journalism podcast, so we, we <laughs> tend to have more of a an oppositional role to journalists. We threaten them <laughs> online and <laughs> and ridicule well, them. We're more editorialists. That's than true. Journalists, I think. That's true. But uh this has been a long time coming. This uh this guy was uh the subject of one of our very early episodes episode six we talked quite a bit about uh, this fellow uh, we also covered one of his articles for the iowa informer maybe a couple months ago please welcome to the rock hard caucus hall of fame aaron calvin thank you for having me aaron thank you for being here i'm so excited uh to have you uh first things first thoughts on carson king's current uh role in <laughs> Wait, 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 in wait, wait, Iowa wait, wait, pop wait. culture. Carson King has a current role. I'm not caught up. Well, I'm, maybe Aaron knows more than I do. Okay, Aaron, fill us in. Well, I, I, we don't chat a lot um, or very often, um, but I have seen um, via the local uh, television news stations, Channel 5 in Des Moines, WI, that Mr. King has become employed by a local roofing company. And uh, the roofing company is in turn using this new hire um, to generate some publicity. And I'm sure that they're a very quality roofing company. <laughs> that sounds about right <laughs> for Mr. King. So for people who, who do remember the first time we ever uttered the name Aaron Calvin on this podcast, Aaron is the guy who wrote about Carson King in the Des Moines Register. And uh, 
shortly thereafter uh, departed from the Des Moines Register, to put it in neutral terms. So, Aaron, what have you been up to since your departure from the Des Moines Register? What was that, like a year and change ago? Yeah, about. Um, I've been writing for various different outlets, um, The Guardian, Vice, BuzzFeed News, a lot of stuff for the Iowa Informer, which is a great Ames-based local news outfit that does a lot of good journalistic work that uh, doesn't get covered at places like the Register. And yeah, I I became kind of unemployed, and then the rest of the world became kind of unemployed. So <laughs> it's been a wild ride, you know. At first, I was like, "Wow, my my life really kind of fell apart there," and then the whole world fell apart. So yeah, we it's actually, up. you know, as far as things go, it's kind of evened out. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Intercept, and you told me well, and I saw you tweeting about it. Um, you were covering the election here in Iowa for the Intercept, correct? Yeah, I went to a Trump rally a few weeks ago, and then um, I was at the uh, Hotel Savory in downtown Des Moines to catch uh, Teresa Greenfield's concession speech. How was that? I haven't uh, read or heard her concession speech. Well, it was very short. Um, It was around like five minutes. She talked about how, you know, she's just a scrappy farm kid, kind (laughs) of hit all the usual notes, Um, didn't mention that the scrappy farm kid also you know, got millions and millions of dollars from real estate and <laughs> pharmaceutical companies and then lost. Um, but, you know, it was kind of, it was actually kind of like a huge bummer. I was sitting, you know, in a conference room, basically just me and some other journalists, the TV journalists would every 15 minutes, like yell into their cameras about how nothing was happening. Um, <laughs> and just watch the results roll in. It was kind of awkward and sad. <laughs> And I had most of it. I had most of the the piece pre written. Anyway, I didn't know that she would lose, um, and I didn't know that the Democrats would lose so badly across the state. Yeah. But obviously, you know, having lived in Iowa and experienced Iowa and been yelled at by many Iowans, <laughs> yes, um, we dream of the kind of engagement that you get. <laughs> yeah. yeah what do we well, but, but we'll be careful what we that. wish for because I understand. Yeah, yeah you went through a lot uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, even if you don't think so, or even or if you don't want to, you know, that many people telling you to kill yourself, you know, kind of, yeah, it gets at you a little bit. But yeah, it's all water under the bridge now. You know, I think we've all we've all moved on from that. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot think... of people are blocked. You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can only imagine. But yeah, it seems like you really flipped it into a pretty successful independent media career, and like. Definitely the best reporter for Black Lives Matter shit in Des Moines and just Des Moines shit in general recently. Well, thank you. So. Yeah. You know, it, you can't like, I never foresaw that kind of thing happening, especially like in Des Moines. But when it all started to happen, I had already been talking to the um, website's editor, Gavin, and we kind of decided that, you know, nobody is going to write about this the right way, especially in Des Moines. So yeah. we should do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the Iowa Informer is one of the few, you know, media organizations that I don't think we've ever trashed on <laughs> on our show. <laughs> we tend to, uh, you know, appreciate the reporting that goes on there. Yeah, you mentioned you went to a Trump rally. Yeah. Where was that? Uh, I was at the Des Moines airport on the tarmac. It was not one of the ones where he left everyone <laughs> freezing because um, it was a pretty nice night, actually. Um, and the Des Moines airport's pretty small, so it's... Uh, it would be hard to get trapped there, even if you were, you know, very immobile. <laughs> but 
it was an, it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, I guess my question is, so you you were you said at least somewhat surprised by how badly the Democrats did in Iowa in this election. Do you think that uh, your experiences like reporting on the election leading up to it give you any kind of special insights into like what happened? I would say that, you know, and I think there's been a lot of discussion about this both nationally and in Iowa. Um, and I know that especially the Iowa Democratic machine will probably be uh, reluctant to draw these kinds of lessons. But in my reporting for The Intercept on the night, of the election, a younger Democratic activist who does have like some standing in the party reached out to me on background um, just to kind of tell me about how mad he was and upset he was that the Democrats kind of biffed it really hard in Iowa, which is, I don't think, you know, the kind of swing state that it might have been during the Obama years or anything like that. Right. But you know, with the way the pandemic has been handled and the way it's all like, you know, spiraling out of control and continuing to do so, it shouldn't have been hard for Democrats to at least gain some kind of ground or at least not lose so much ground. But because of the fact that they are still so, um, you know, controlled and, and married to the kind of um, Vilsackian um, <laughs> corporatist politics that they they practice, you know, and I think that the Iowa Democratic Party is very similar to a lot of Iowa media. It's like not really about Iowa. It's about using the things that Iowa is known for, like politics, like the caucus, stuff like that, yeah. um, to kind of develop the career where you get out of Iowa and then go do something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of politics reporters at the Register um, have gone on to more lucrative gigs at CNN or the Washington Post or something like that. And, you know, I think the Democrats function very much as like a a party line democracy in that sense. And if they haven't seen from this election that they can't depend on the two or three urban centers in Iowa to get them through and that they're going to have to start talking to people who live in rural areas and start bringing things to the table that might be appealing to, you know, either people who live and work in the agricultural industry or at least live in in rural places that have seen a lot of serious divestment and a lot of that occurred under under the helm of democrats like Vilsack, like um like the other governor Chet Culver Chet Culver thank you yes. Yes. Um, yeah like Culver you know and under Obama and stuff like that you know and Vilsack was very much tied to the Obama administration but yeah, I think if there is any lessons that I took from reporting recently for The Intercept and both on Iowa in general over the last two years, I think um, it's that the Democratic Party needs to seriously reckon with their messaging and what kind of things that they you know, are devoted to. I don't know if you've probably seen that viral list that's been going around um, that I think probably points like maybe too much of like a one-dimensional picture about candidates who supported who support m4a and then lost yeah Um, but i don't but i don't think it's a a coincidence that abby finkenhauer is up there and and lost to ashley hinson you know Um, Mm -hmm. i mean that's pretty like democrats have like should be embarrassed about that because that (laughs) yeah it was embarrassing yeah i mean our conclusion is is pretty much that uh, ashley hinson was a tv lady and you just can't beat that you know right she was on tv I think the I think the chicken hour thing was more effective than most people would probably want to admit. I may have missed that. Is that like an attack ad? Uh, they made like a fake 
Twitter bot um, called Abby Chickenhauer um, that was constantly <laughs> tweeting about um, how Abby would debate Ashley Henson. Oh, um, I think that's not. I don't think that was true. But um, yeah, didn't they was, debate on PBS? They did. And I thought everyone but Fiends did. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's another thing too that Gavin um, Aronson at the Iowa Informer has written about that I think maybe one of the, the only. Uh, media outlets in Iowa has written about it about how much misinformation on a local level um, Republicans in Iowa get out there, and they they love to attack journalists like myself, like Liz Lenz, who was a liberal columnist for the um, Cedar Rapids Gazette, mm-hmm. um, who was fired because um, of the the anger that she drew from um, GOP activists. Um, and they attack a lot of journalists across the board. Um, and the response from people at the register at places like that is to kind of like wring their hands and be like, oh, don't don't attack me, please. But not to actually report on, you know, it has the, the effect that the GOP operatives want, which is to chill um, reporting on the kind of misinformation that they're spreading and make it so that if the media brings any kind of special attention to them, uh, they can write it off as as being biased. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a minute ago that a lot of uh, DeWine Register employees they're they're just kind of using it as a stepping stone to uh, more national, bigger cities, stuff like that. This may be a personal question, but do you, do you feel like you were perhaps on that path before uh, the incident last year? Did the, did what happened with your Carson King article kind of change your trajectory and? make you kind of push you in the direction of like the stuff you're reporting at the Iowa Informer as opposed to the stuff you're writing for the register? Um, you know, I, I don't think that it changed my personal politics a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always kind of felt that you know, every journalist that you read, every person that publishes anything in the newspaper or on the internet or anything, they have politics. If you don't know them, then they're just not like telling you what they are. Or yes. Showing you what they are basically. Um, and, you know, the register is an institution. It's a, a centrist institution at best. It's also like one of the, you know, largest publications in, in Iowa. And I grew up reading the register and I, I did really enjoy that job. And I did um, enjoy some of the work that I was able to do. And I did exert what some people would probably see as uh, a political uh, stance uh, while I was there. You know, I Sometimes different reporters or like interns or whatever would try to publish things that had the headline officer involved shooting sure. um, in the headline. And I would be like, the police shot somebody, you know, we can say that. <laughs> yeah. Little things like that. I, I, I contended to them at the time and I still do that I didn't violate any of their social media policies while I was their employee, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, in the in the end, they... Uh, they they chose their route. I I requested they fired me. They gave me the the option to right, do so. Right. Yeah. And because I thought the doing was pretty spineless. Um. And I but I you know I still have a lot of or I I still I had some friends there. The turnover rate's pretty high. I think they all might have moved on at this point. But saying that the that the place of the register is a stepping stone. One of the things I think um, might be a problem for some of the more careerist focused employees who work there at this point is that. The whole thing's pretty precarious for everybody, and I don't love being in the position of being a freelance um, journalist because I don't, you know, I don't have health insurance. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know when my my paychecks are coming in or whatever. But I think certain things that I've written this year I wouldn't have been able to do 
without having gained this weird sort of notoriety in the first place. Right, sure. And definitely, I think if I was still at the register um, when the Black Lives Matter stuff came into focus and George Floyd was killed, I would have found myself, I would have been very frustrated probably with the limitations um, that are put upon um, reporters. And they still got maced or um, in Andrea Sahuri's case, um, right, right, you know, arrested. And I, I got maced too, you know, Every, everybody got maced, um, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't get arrested. So I got out of there pretty quick. Yeah. DMPD has been really crazy this year. Well, um, you know, I don't know if you follow the politics closely in Des Moines or the city council meetings at all, but they just had one, right? Yeah. They're having one like right now or yeah, they okay. did have one. Um, but like a lot of police departments across America and basically every city, I guess, you know, they're pretty much allowed to act with impunity. So, you know, they're able to get away with whatever they can because they are allowed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I assume the media reporting has a lot to do with access too. they're afraid to piss off like sources. Paul Parizek. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing that is, you know, similar, I think, between the Des Moines Police Department and um, the Republican Party um, in the state and nationally um, and a commonality between their relationship with journalism and journalists is that the journalists should know by now that they're going to be treated this way no matter what. Yes. So they might as well, they might as well do more probably. Um, and that's not to say that people like um, Andrea aren't doing excellent reporting because um, she is and, and they are, but as institutions um, clearly, you know, there's a lot of deference being paid that isn't reciprocated. Yes. Uh, I mean, you've been on the inside, so I think you have a better idea of this than than I would. But it seems like there's like this enforced kind of objectivity where you can't report on like a situation like the the police macing a bunch of children in Des Moines. Uh, You can't report on that just like truthfully. You have to kind of, you know, make it neutral even when your own reporters are the ones like being thrown in jail yeah um yeah and you know there's a lot of journalists more like a national level really who are starting to point out or it's starting to become maybe more younger journalists maybe are becoming more aware of the idea that you know you wouldn't just quote a source who has repeatedly lied to you or obfuscated the truth to you in the in the paper or not or if they have some specific bias, like you would make sure to note that um, or some kind of special relationship, you would definitely note that. And I think we're starting to maybe slowly get further away um, from just reprinting police statements like they're fact or like that's what happened, even if you were there, you know, and obviously like the register is still doing that. Um, and there's no newspaper in Iowa that would qualify any statement from the police except for obviously the informer because i because i've done that um yeah there's a long way to go mm-hmm. well let's let's start getting into your informer stuff uh so the, the the reason we have you on today is for your big uh investigation into bruce girlman who is the owner of jethro's barbecue uh it's a very thorough piece so I, i'm curious like where did this come from like when did you decide you wanted to write about this guy well, you guys are based in, in Iowa City, right? Uh, I'm in part? Iowa City. These other two are in Des Moines. Hey, okay. I have to go. I'm really sorry. Oh, okay. I'm so grateful to have met you, and I can't wait to hear about the rest of your, your interview. Oh. It's nice to meet you, too, Anna. Yeah. 
All right. Have a good night, Natalie. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Evan, you're based in, in Des Moines, right? Yes. So you either have eaten at or um, are familiar with or have driven by one of the many Jethro's barbecue locations. Yes. Or, yes. Or and they're very downtown. annoying uh, radio ads. Yes. Jethro's well, barbecue. <laughs> yeah, they're a big. Um, <laughs> they're they're a big advertiser. They've got a lot of money. They're probably, I would say, one of the most visible um, and most obviously powerful restaurant groups in Des Moines. So there's been like a trend, you know, that has kind of a, a branch kind of of the Me Too movement, I think, um, which I think when people talk about it, maybe we don't talk about how much it's like a journalism centered movement. Oh, um, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, yeah, you know, like the first um, institutional power that has kind of been has been harnessed to to get these stories out there is is journalism, and a, a branch of this has been through food media a lot, especially very high profile stuff like the Mario Batali stuff. You know, different exposés about different restaurants and their working conditions, and there's been a, a growing public you know, reckoning with how broken the food industry is across the board and how much it's rooted in sexism and not just sexism, but sexual harassment and abuse right, and, right. Um, and racism and kind of very much rooted in this hierarchical um, way that all restaurants are traditionally built, starting with the owner and going down. Well, Aaron, have you, have you ever worked in food service? Uh, I I have well I I did very briefly um, when I was like sixteen um, I was like a a waiter at a at a crepery across from the Jordan Creek Mall and okay uh, yeah the, the restaurant's gone now because it was very bad and I was a bad employee. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think those experiences like when you are a teenager and you're working at a restaurant like that can be the most enlightening really into how that world works. Well, and the thing is, I think that almost everybody knows how these things work. You yes. know, like. And mm -hmm. that's a response that you get to a lot of this reporting and definitely a response I saw a lot in response to this specific piece is like, oh, we all knew this was happening, you know? So, but it's like one of the reasons why so many former employees of Jethro's and Splash wanted to talk to me about Bruce Skrillman's behavior is because, you know, in the press and in public, um, even if everybody knew or heard stories or hearsay or rumors about his behavior or how his restaurants were run. Nobody, there was never, there was no actual reporting on it. You know, there was no public, publicly verifiable or anything reported out. Yeah. It's more degree. like an open secret. Just everyone yeah. knows <laughs> like social media and all There's that no source. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And people kind of, I think take, you know, and things are the same way for so long. People take or kind of get used to just like the way things are, especially in a place like Iowa, like Des Moines. You know, people think things are a certain way and they won't change. Yeah. And that's uh, that seems to be, you know, across the board, kind of like an Iowan culture thing. Maybe the Midwest at large. I think I brought this up on a recent episode or maybe when we talked to the South Dakota guys. But like in terms of like politics in Iowa, it's a very much like just don't talk about it. Just this is the way things are. You're not going to change them. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Move on past it. Make your life better. Right. And I think it's in Iowa and Des Moines that younger people, especially, um, like you see that most of the people who are out marching for black lives are, are much younger people. Mm -hmm. And the people who are speaking out against the status quo are definitely younger people. So 
there's definitely a, a generational friction occurring right now. But yeah, so I think that what really set this story into motion um, is the story that the report opens with, the encounter between a woman um, and her two sons with Bruce Girlman at the newly opened Southside Jethro's. Mm-hmm. And I saw this first um, when the woman posted her story on Facebook, um, and it started to attract a little bit of attention because she didn't have she posted on Facebook because she didn't have any other avenue. Nobody would listen to her and nobody would do anything about this thing that she felt was really offensive. Um, yeah, I mean, it's extremely inappropriate behavior with children. So <laughs> I think it's a, a big deal. Yeah, I mean, a recurring theme here um, in the institutions in Iowa that I've reported on um, and uh, my reporting on this kind of one man, supermassive Des Moines institution is that you know, people only do things, do they only do these things because they believe very strongly that they can get away with it without suffering any consequences. Much like the police. <laughs> right. It's all Much related. like, yeah, the government, um, the police, you know, anybody doing anything only does as much as what they think that they can get away with, which is also a broader theme and, and the defunding of local journalism and stuff like that. Hmm. So, I mean, we want people to read this, so I, I don't want us to, you know, give away everything in the piece. But, listeners, this is called Sexual Harassment, Booze, and Barbecue Inside Bruce Girlman's Restaurant Empire. You can find it at the Iowa Informer. So, you go into kind of this guy's history, and Bruce made his money in real estate, yes? Yeah, he has this kind of self-mythology um, that he's reported <laughs> that, you know, he started as a mattress salesman and made a bunch of money and flipped it into one of the most lucrative things you could possibly flip it into, which is being a landlord and flipping it into real estate. So that was like the, the genesis of his first income. And as I get into a little bit in the piece, he came to Des Moines and started, you know, getting into different things, um, tanning salons when they first started to become in vogue in the eighties. But I think like one, like super, like super rich people or like very rich people don't, make money on on their own you know and i think i laid out in the piece a strong argument to show that bruce was helped throughout um the 1980s by the city council of des moines who and by you know changing tax laws um as reagan took power as um as terry brandstad took power right you know the first time right first time and these people didn't i wouldn't i'm not like accusing these entities or even the Des Moines City Council of like, you know, purposefully going out of their way to help them. But one of the city council's main jobs even today is to basically decide who gets lucrative real estate contracts. Right, right. Sure. Yeah, it struck me that like Bruce Gerleman really isn't unique. I mean, in the sense that like there's guys like this in every Midwestern city, you know, who develop real estate sort of not empires, but you know, in a smallish city like Des Moines, obviously he's accumulated a lot of power and a lot of influence. Right. He's not a billionaire, but in Des Moines, being a millionaire, um, being a, a property owner and an employer um, gives you a lot of power over people. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are some people who would say that this kind of the kind of things that we reported on in this piece, that maybe Bruce Girlman or you know, his romantic partner who is um, also uh, given a, a pretty lengthy aside in the piece and his, the, the managers that worked for him um, were all private citizens to some degree. But I think the common thread is that these are all people who had power over other people 
and abused it to one degree or another. Yes, yes. And yeah, that's something that struck me about this as well. Like what Evan said, like I've worked for this guy, but on a smaller scale in, you know, maybe half of the jobs I've worked. Like this is kind of uh, an archetype. It's just like this is how powerful men especially behave like once you've attained a certain amount of wealth a certain amount of power over other people you're going to abuse that yeah. power yeah he, he definitely seems like uh, you know like kind of like the small town salesman kind <laughs> of type for sure yeah and like you know this is that classic story like you know blue velvet or anything like that where you know there is um a very real darkness that the entirety of you know the beautiful white picket fence Americana um, is built on top of, and to many people for many years, and probably still because the informer doesn't have like a very huge audience, um, they believe that Girlman is something to aspire to, um, right. and what people would think of as being a successful person, which he is, <laughs> but uh, he's got a lot of money, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't want you to give away anything you might be working on, but do you think like there could be additional investigations into additional people in these kinds of positions? Um, definitely, there's people who have reached out to share more stories about Bruce. One of the the second most common response, besides uh, we knew all about this already, um, <laughs> was this isn't even the half of it, and it's definitely not even half of what I heard in the the course of reporting this story, everything reported in the story is the most verified and um, corroborated stuff that, that we heard. And so more has come out about that. Other people have reached out about that. Um, and other people have reached out a little bit about other local restaurateurs. You could probably guess who they are even, but <laughs> if you live in Des Moines, <laughs> uh, but I don't know, you know, um, this story took a long time to report. It took a, there was a lot of legal documentation that I read through. Uh, there were a lot of people that I interviewed, um, and those interviews were very um, intense. You know, they're like um, there's people like sharing with me some of the worst things that ever happened to them, right? Um, yeah, and and things that you know, if I didn't handle sourcing them appropriately, like you know, a lot of people who aren't very media literate think that anonymous sourcing is just like people leaving tips or whatever just like you know anonymous messages to me but everyone in the story is somebody that i i knew exactly who they were and i knew when and where they worked for bruce girlman and their stories were you know i, I sat down and listened to their stories and then transcribed their stories again and listened to them over and over again so a story like this is um is very difficult to report and that's why they don't get reported often, not just because um, it was a really strenuous thing for me to do, but because even though we had the story read over by a lawyer and did everything we could to make sure everything was factually correct and right. reported in good faith, the people who talked to me were very brave just to trust me to tell their story without giving away details that would, that would identify them, mm -hmm. um, but also uh, because... Uh, Bruce Grohlman is known to be an extremely litigious individual. Right. He can come yeah. after you if he wants. Right. Yeah. You know, um, we got a pretty solid um, recommendation from our lawyer that any kind of frivolous lawsuit that was brought against us would probably not have any merit and would, you know, probably be dismissed. But 
that would still cost uh, money for me and for the informer mm-hmm. and the informer's publisher, um, who unlike an entity like the Des Moines Register, um, who could probably afford to do more reporting like this, uh, you know, we don't have lawyers on retainer um, and we don't actually have um, a lot of money at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the Des Moines Register, I mean, they're, I don't know if Jethro specifically gives them money, but I mean, they're you know, supported by the business community of Des Moines. And this would really ruffle some feathers that they probably don't want ruffled. Right. They would do, I can personally attest, um, having worked there, that they would go out of their way to never report a story like this. Um, not just because of who it would offend, but because it's just not their style at all. This is mm-hmm. this is a newer kind of reporting um, that I think is very necessary, but it's not also not a coincidence that you know young people like myself i'm not so young anymore but um (laughs) i think you're younger than us just barely maybe but i'm i'm 28 i'm almost 20 yeah okay i'm 30 yeah i'm 31 yeah yeah. well there we go you know um (laughs) the youngest one we're we're, we're not not as young as we used to be you know (laughs) yeah and it's but you know having worked at the register i know the way that corporations who feed their more and more tenuous bottom line are able to exert pressure on them like Hy-Vee for example Hy-Vee is a great example of that they have are a very political grocery store and have a lot of money and yeah. um, use it to advertise not as much as they used to but they're still one of the few reliable advertisers so they get to influence their coverage in all kinds of little ways yeah as for Jethro's Jethro's is really interesting, and I get into this a little bit in the piece. I don't think it's giving too much away, um, but they're very much connected to um, Republican politics and conservative politics um, across the state. Um, and when it comes time for the caucuses, tons of, of different Republican candidates have spoken um, at Jethro's. There have been Republican watch parties for Trump debates. Um, Secretary Mike Pompeo met with Bruce Gerlman at one of his Jethro's locations last year. Wow. Um, And they also advertise with some, like, you know, they have their jingles on the radio, but they also specifically advertise with some of the most um, conservative uh, radio personalities in Des Moines. Like, for example, they're a big advertiser for Heather Burnside's radio show. Um, And if you're a Des Moines person who's been paying a lot of attention, you know that Heather Burnside is married to Paul Perizic, who is the Des Moines Police Department spokesperson. Mm-hmm. So She's uh, come up on this show a few times now. Oh, yeah. Both of them. <laughs> yeah, they, they have their own Missing Persons podcast that is very offensive. Some might find it, but... That's in addition to the radio show. Yes. Oh, yeah. maybe I should check um, out the podcast. It doesn't get as colleagues. much attention. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, all podcasters, all local podcasters. But, um, We're all in one big union. That's the thing about also reporting on a piece like this. Um, and it was difficult to make the the choice of including the stuff about Girlman's longtime romantic partner, Cynthia Fodor, um, who also is a news anchor at a uh, local news station, KCCI. Right. Because... Obviously, that relationship is very complicated, um, and it mostly came down to how it affected employees and how her association with Girlman gave her power over others and how mm-hmm. she used that power. But yeah, the thing about Des Moines and a city like Des Moines in the Midwest that's small, it's insular, um, and every everything and everybody is connected. So when you start digging up some parts of something, um, you'll likely hit on something that affects somebody else who has a lot of power as well. Yeah. 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 One thing I was going to say about Gorillaman is that he's also like super image conscious, which I guess you would kind of expect, but 
the way that he he's kind of aware, I guess, somewhat of his reputation and then tells his employees to kind of protect him, <laughs> you know, from anyone who's going to ask questions. And uh, obviously also, like you said, his connections with the media. Yeah, he's very responsive to, you know, for somebody who is so powerful and has done um, allegedly so many um, very not good things to people. Um, <laughs> yeah. He is astoundingly responsive um, and self-conscious about how he's viewed by the public and the way that he reacts to different stories that have been reported about him. Just in my interactions alone with him, he originally submitted a pretty like tepid statement to us via his lawyer mm. that you know was pretty boilerplate classic. Like, um, I didn't do any of this stuff, but if I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> mm. You know? And so we were just going to print that. But then, like, I think the night before we ran the story, he sent us um, a second statement, which is the statement we ended up printing in the story, which was a little bit more angry (laughs) and accused us of journalistic malpractice, um, different stuff like that. Yeah. Was that one filtered through his lawyer or was that just straight from the man himself? He emailed that directly to (laughs) to myself and the publisher. So he he does care a lot about what what people think about him yeah and you mentioned earlier that this is kind of like a new kind of reporting and so it seems like he's like around 70 right he's kind of an older guy yeah he'll be 70 in december okay so it seems like you know this kind of you know people actually reporting on his abusive actions it's kind of catching him off guard so he's yeah you know he spent 65 years or so doing whatever he wants and now suddenly he's being held accountable well he's had a couple incidents too that got like the public in talks and the, the DUI. Sure. Well, yeah. And then there was, um, it didn't involve him personally, but there was, um, one of the things that's covered in the piece is a lawsuit that was brought against a manager that worked for him and a restaurant that he owns in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and the details in the complaint are really scandalous. And I was surprised when I I got my hands on it that, you know, this isn't something that was leaked to me or something that I, I got that was hard to get, you know, like it's public record. Yeah. It's probably like the case shows up in, um, in the Iowa courts online system and anybody with access to that could find it. Um, so I was surprised that a lot of this had never been really reported before and that the closest he ever came to bad press really was, um, the kind of flippant city view column about his DUI in 2017. Right. Right. Or his his OWI that he eventually pled out of, I think. But yeah, no, he's a very powerful person. Yeah, has been given a lot of a lot of rope and is used to getting reports in the press. Well, because it's it's also like it's about a, a change in food reporting. You know, I think a lot yeah. of investigative reporters for years and years and probably even now would think that reporting on somebody like Girlman would be below them, um, that they focus most of their investigative prowess on government activities, you know, things that taxpayers, you know, taxpayers are... <laughs> are responsible for you know the meaningful to them um but like i i showed in the piece um when you look into girlman's history taxpayers have as much invested in the growth and success of of girlman's businesses as they do in um you know a, a government program that gives out food or something you know because it's been taxpayer money federal and local the um that has been spent to ensure this this success you know it's been given to him when he's asked right and he he wouldn't have built up his his fortune without help from local government right and a lot of this a lot of this reporting has focused on 
nationally known restaurants that usually um, are focused on cities like New York and San Francisco and stuff. Like mm-hmm. there was a recent piece a few weeks, I think, before we published the Girlman piece about Mission Chinese in New York and how it's like a very popular restaurant in New York that was considered very cool for a long time. And this piece just came out in Eater, the the food blog that was really focused on how terrible um, people who worked there were treated mm-hmm. um, and how ter- terrible and dysfunctional of a place it was to work. So these, this kind of reporting is becoming more and more in vogue when it comes to like subjects that are powerful enough to feel that they merit the focus. But it's people like grillmen or restaurateurs who thrive and have millions and millions of dollars um, in assets and property and employees in cities like Des Moines that don't get a lot of focus for national focus for any reason at all Mm -hmm. that are still left in the dark for for the most part and still could really benefit from this kind of reporting. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine, you know, with the kind of environment that's been fostered at the the Jethro's locations that the turnover is probably fairly high. Uh, Did you, you know... I'm trying to be careful. Like I don't, I don't want any of your <clears throat> sources to be exposed either. But um, did you have trouble like finding people to talk about this, or were there like hundreds of people <laughs> lining up? Yeah, I guess like there weren't hundreds. Um, <laughs> according to Girlman, he employs something around like 700 or 800 people. Um, but there was enough that a lot of people came to talk to me. In fact, I, I started talking to the first few people that I sourced in the story just by tweeting about it. Um, in okay. June, I tweeted, hey, if anybody knows anybody who worked for Jethro's or any of these other restaurants um, and has heard a weird story like the, the first story that opens the piece or wants to talk about their experience there, I'd love to talk to you. And that got me started with just a few people, you know, former managers and former employees who jumped into my my mentions and were like, you know, hey, this happened to me. This is the interactions I had with Bruce or Cynthia or like these other people. But also, you know, the, this other th- stuff happened to like my friend who also worked there. Um, a lot of people, you know, that's the other thing about a place like Des Moines is that when you employ as many people as like a large restaurant group like Jethro's does, you end up employing a lot of people who go on to do other things, you know? And right. One one thing that was I thought was interesting was um, when I was um, requesting different records um, from the county records keepers, one of the women I spoke to there was like, was was pulling the documents for me and was like, oh, I used to work at Jethro's, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, she was like, I'm very interested interested to see what you, you get out of these documents. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, and I think like one really important source was somebody who I spoke with who worked at Jethro's for a long, long time, like uh, about a decade, um, and was very high up in the organization and was able to be kind of an authoritative bridge figure um, that connected a lot of dots for me. But yeah, it was... um, it wasn't as hard as you think, and I think that after such a long time and so long of Bruce Grillman just getting only good press, uh, I think people were just kind of fed up with with the way that he was painted, and they wanted they wanted people to hear their stories, but they didn't personally want to get sued. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> yeah, 
I will say I'm pretty neutered to Moyne and not, definitely not very well connected, but I had heard at least the first story in the piece uh, through social media. So it, it's definitely been going around. <laughs> like, And my sister, I think, knows a couple of employees as well who have said some things. But <laughs> Yeah, it's like, yeah, everybody everybody has a story and a lot of them are very similar to the, the ones included in the piece. I would love to see similar stories about uh, you know, restaurant owners in Cedar Rapids, perhaps movie theater owners in Cedar Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> you have a couple of leads there. I could possibly, but yeah, I mean, every every person that's worked like a service job has experienced something like this. Like it's that's just the nature of like people who run businesses. They tend to be somewhat tyrannical. In some cases, it's very reckless, like, personal interactions, like Bruce Girlman. Right. And in Iowa, you know, like, the towns aren't that big. Like, the word's going to get around. And they've, you know, they've been getting away with it for decades. Right. The deeper issue here, obviously, is, like, what do you do with the kind of horrible uh, workplace hierarchies that basically are, like, essential functions of, of capitalism? Yeah. Um, as far as like what you do about that, I don't. I don't <laughs> that's a little outside of my scope. Yeah, but I think maybe you know if there is the threat of more reporting like this, or even just like I think really what it comes down to, what makes a story like this happen, is a willingness for institutions and reporters to publish anonymous sources more, because mm. that's the only way that you can really get people to share their lived experiences. Um, in a way that that would otherwise if you were to source them by name would ruin their life yeah well yeah it would hurt them professionally <laughs> or or hurt them in some other way or, or cause them to receive attention that they don't want um and the thing is that it's not like an unheard of practice in media anonymous sourcing right well how yeah. often do you read like a cnn article <laughs> that is about the president or about a political figure during the caucuses or something and it's like a, sta- a key staffer from blah 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 um, <laughs> spoke um, under the condition of anonymity to you know um, so they could speak freely, mm-hmm. stuff like that. That kind of stuff happens all the time, and it, I think it makes. Well, I mean, you can argue whether that makes political reporting better, but I think it would be a better practice to bring towards reporting on things like restaurants and industry stuff like that, which is also something that's changing food writing and food reporting is moving moving past what a lot of people would consider frivolous or just like reviews about the food or or stuff like that it's more of like a it's starting to take a shape where there's more of a focus on who's really behind the food and who's you know what's really happening to the people who are really running these restaurants and i think it's kind of a a reaction to the sort of food hero lionization that's happened in the past like couple decades or so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it does seem like the restaurant industry is like specifically suited for taking advantage of employees um (laughs) just like specifically like going to jethro's it's always like packed as hell Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. the employees are already pushed you know they're already spread pretty thin you can tell and it's like they're under like immediate demands yeah, I'd say like that's one of like the reasons why another reason why it felt important to to talk about Jethro's um because they were one of the first and most um powerful restaurants to really open their doors all the way up after after the original COVID um lockdown and there seems to be like a a big willingness there 
to stay open and get customers in there as much as possible. And I, I live near Jethro's. I drive, you know, driving around Des Moines, I, I drive past different Jethro's. Um, they're all still packed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I've eaten at the one off of the interstate. I don't remember like where that is. They're all kind of off the interstate. Yeah. Well, one of them then. <laughs> it's been a few years, but uh, well, I guess. Do you have any recommendations for alternative barbecue sources in Des Moines? <laughs> Man, you know that's that's a issue. Um, <laughs> I used to really love this place called Woody's. Yeah. Um, in my neighborhood, and it closed because the owner died, and the guy who took it over died. Oh um, wow! So yeah, it was very unfortunate turn of events, but it was great barbecue. And that sucks. Um, Smoky D's used to be off Ingersoll, but they relocated because um, real estate prices are going up down there. I would say one place I would recommend is this kind of catering group that you can order individual meals from that operates in the Sherman Hill neighborhood called Palms Caribbean. It's not barbecue, um, but it is um, really great jerk chicken and Jamaican food. Mm-hmm. Barbecue places in Des Moines and, and Iowa in general, there's a lot of them. They're all over the place. Jamaican food, I think, is a little harder to find, and it's really, really good. And if you like barbecue, then you'll probably really like Jamaican food, too. Um, yeah. So I would also recommend that. Nice. People, check it out. Uh, well, since Natalie had to go, I know she wanted to ask about this. Aaron, since you recently did some work for The Intercept, um, <laughs> what did you do to uh, to get Glenn Greenwald fired? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of anonymous sources. <laughs> well, freelance reporters and freelance contractors are not not consulted in such things. Um, I, I was not privy to any knowledge about what happened, uh, and I've everything I've I've been reading all the articles about behind the scenes happenings um, mm-hmm. to try to get some information, just like everybody else. And you know, considering what's happened to me and my my history with um, cancel culture, yes. <laughs> I'm always interested um, to hear about what guys who make a lot more money than me uh, have to say about it. Um, I will say that The Intercept has been super cool to work with. They have been great um, at paying me, which is one of my most important things. Um, And they've also, you know, I like, you know, when you are a freelance reporter, you work with a lot of different editors and you get to realize that a lot of different people have different editing styles and the way they do things. And I really like working with the editors that I've worked with there. I think that one of Glenn Greenwald's um, main charges in his um, his quitting was that The Intercept is bias- was biased towards Joe Biden yes. and their refusal to allow him to just like publish whatever he wanted about Hunter Biden. Mm-hmm. And that has not been my experience. Um, I haven't. I didn't write anything specifically about Joe Biden, except the fact that he lost pretty badly in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I have not been censored um, in any way. I will say that. But I wish. I wish Glenn the best of luck with his Substack. <laughs> um, I have a Substack too. It's called Ways of Eating. Uh, AaronCalvin.substack.com. I write about food stuff there too sometimes, but not as often anymore because. I have to prioritize things that pay me more often. Yeah, obviously. Well, since you brought up cancel culture, uh, (laughs) I feel like you would probably have uh, a unique perspective on it. Do you feel that you were, quote, canceled? Um, Well, I wrote the whole Columbia Journalism Review essay in which I said that, no, I was was not canceled. Um, 
I don't think anybody was really canceled. I don't think that cancel culture is like a real thing, really. <laughs> um, it's just like, and it's been funny to watch um, it become the f- favorite topic of, um, like, like I said, like people who are much wealthier than me, <laughs> right. um, probably much wealthier than I'll ever be, and how they feel like their, you know, their views or whatever are being, are they being punished for their views? And I haven't, I have yet to see a good example of somebody um, losing. Of, of suffering materially because they have been quote unquote canceled. Um, in fact, the opposite in many cases. <laughs> right. You know, um, and I said this in the CJR essay, um, if I really wanted to, you know, I probably could have found like a good way to grift my quote unquote cancellation or whatever, or like, <laughs> you know, like done a full 180 and been like, um, after like all the, you know, conservative college football people, got done screaming at me been like i've been canceled you know <laughs> subscribe to my youtube channel um right well you do have but, a sub stack which i've heard is right. is grifting so well well i <laughs> i don't have a subscription program because okay. i'm not that popular um, <laughs> sure so uh i'm i'm not canceled because my sub stack is still free um, there you go <laughs> but yeah i don't i don't think it's it's real um I would obviously love a full-time job. That would be awesome. <laughs> but I'm still getting work. I'm still getting paid. I have a great community and, and family who have stuck by me through all of this many strange and unfortunate events. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't believe in, in cancellation. And um, I, I, fr- I, I frankly would challenge anybody to, to say this real. I mean, after my incendiary reporting. Um, <laughs> Very know, much. Carson doubled um, the amount that he was able to contribute to the the children with cancer, um, and he, as I understand, um, continues to run a successful foundation in which he continues to raise money, and apparently has a successful job in the roofing industry. So, <laughs> I think that we all we all came out of it okay, except for maybe the Des Moines Register. Um, God bless them, I guess. <laughs> they they may have lost some credibility in some people's eyes. Well, they really. I, it's my personal opinion that they couldn't win for losing in that situation. They definitely <laughs> tried to see how badly they could lose. Yeah, that was a no-win situation, <laughs> I think, and they chose not maybe the the less least win, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. In a in a situation with no good choices, um, they choose chose the worst ones each time. I think, like those Goosebumps novels, where you choose your own adventure. And, <laughs> Well, they went to say page twenty seventy two repeatedly and just died immediately. <laughs> they cheated. Even they looked ahead to see which one would kill them, and they they chose the death every time. It looks like they're not going to have to worry about that competitor to Ragbri though, because that looks like it's uh, <laughs> canceled yeah, this speak, year yeah. and probably canceled foreseeable future. <laughs> that was a, a super admirable grift, and I was really interested <laughs> yeah, yeah. to see. Yeah, speaking of grifting. I was really interested to see how that was going to play out. Um, and it's unfortunate that COVID robbed us of the ability God, yeah. um, to watch that whole thing, um, which all indicators showed that it was going to fall right on his face. <laughs> yeah. They were uh, biking into a like headwind. <laughs> they were right. going the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Just to be and, different. Yeah. And that was just like a, a wild situation. And congratulations to that guy. Um for you know honestly i think the thing there was that that guy was in charge of ragbri for so long and saw how much money that thing made and how much of that money went straight to gannett right 
the registers ownership corporation um and was like i i want more of this money and he did not get it <laughs> but that's too bad it's worth a shot yeah <laughs> yeah who knows how much longer even the register or any of Gannett's huge local newspaper uh, market will have to worry about any of this before their <laughs> extreme liquidation. Yeah, they're they're cutting to the bone. I mean, you can tell. Well, if you like, if you read up on um, a lot of like the kind of you know insidery bits of their Gannett ownership's choices. Speaking of no-win situations. Um, even before COVID, the interest on the loan that Gannett took on in order to um, absorb all of those gatehouse papers in 2019 mm-hmm. was a huge, huge, um, extremely optimistic thing to think that they would be able to pay off. And after the pandemic hit, uh, it's looking very, very bad. So um, that probably won't go well. Um, we'll, we'll probably, I'm sure we'll see some more fallout from that. And I don't, I don't want to appear, I guess, like, you know, obviously I have nothing nice to say about the register outside of a few, like, (laughs) decent reporters, but I do think that local journalism is really, really important, and I think that it should be funded in a sustainable way, and I don't know how it's possible to get to that place, um, but we're going the opposite direction currently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that could be the subject for a much longer discussion. But uh, we've been we've been going for a little over an hour now, so I think I think we should probably wrap up this episode of Rock Hard Caucus. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. You are much more experienced in this world than we are, so I feel like you have a lot of uh, a lot of perspective to offer us, and I appreciate you joining us tonight. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed our discussion. And uh, once again, the name of the piece that we were discussing is uh, Sexual Harassment, Booze, and Barbecue, Inside Bruce Girlman's Restaurant Empire, uh, written by our friend here, Aaron Calvin, at iowainformer.com. Where else could people find your work, Aaron? Uh, AaronCalvin.com. That's AaronCalvin.com, A-R-O-N-C-A-L-V-I-N.com. Yep. <laughs> Spelled how it sounds, AaronCalvin.com. Uh, I do think Aaron's tweets are very nice, and you may enjoy following him there as well. <laughs> At Aaron P. Calvin, uh, don't believe what you heard. Uh, my tweets are <laughs> very tame. Yeah, not, not particularly offensive from what I've seen. Not worthy of being fired from a newspaper, if, if you were asking my opinion. <laughs> I'm going to put that one on my website. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, something tells me it wasn't really about the tweets. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was cozy under that bus, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think that'll do it for us tonight. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Evan, for co-hosting with me. Thank you, Natalie, for joining us for a little bit tonight. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Thanks, guys. God bless. Jeff Rose Barbecue. Real Texas barbecue, smoked low and slow, just for you, barbecue. Smoked all night, ready for the day, just a sandwich or a pound you can take away. Jeff Rose Barbecue. Jeff Rose Barbecue, Real Texas barbecue, Jeff Rose Barbecue.